Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... There's few elections on history that have been as unpopular as the one that we're likely seeing between Biden and Trump. The, the majority of Americans don't want to see it occur, but for a number of reasons, it is. The New Hampshire primaries turn out to be another win for Donald Trump, and it does look like another re-election rerun of the Trump versus Biden election in 2020. To see those conditions day in, day out, and have kids beg you for food, Terrible conditions in the Cairns Watch House. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. Prime Minister Albanese has taken his proposal to vary the legislated Stage 3 tax changes today's caucus meeting. This should mean a windfall for middle-income earners paid for by those over the $180,000 mark. I asked UTS Chief Economist Professor Tim Harcourt why there was likely to be a change as these tax cuts were put into the budget some years back. Yeah, that's right, in the previous government and, uh, you know, legislated into law... LAW, so you know there's been an expectation from the community that they're going to come in, come into force. And uh, the third tranche is is the one that's that's causing a lot of issues, and that is the one that is in the higher tax brackets. And uh, I, I think that the idea is that it comes down to thirty percent for people over one hundred eighty thousand a year. I think. Do you think that that's a good figure or a bad figure in terms of world taxation measures? Well, there's two principles at stake. I mean, one is there's that um, Anthony Albanese said at the election he would he would promise to keep those tax cuts. So, you know, he, it's an election promise. So, of course, if he pulls away from that, he'll get some political heat. Um, so he'll have to say, well, circumstances change. So, therefore, I have to rejig him. Um, the, the test is this. Um, from what we've seen in the media, they'll say that, look, we've got to give relief to people at lower and middle income levels, and to do that, we'll have to scrap the tax cuts or lower them. Now, that sounds good from a progressive point of view, but um, the amounts of money they're talking about, 180000 is um, not a uh, terribly rich salary in Sydney and perhaps Melbourne with mortgages and uh, the cost of living and so on. So there will be a view that um, you know people are aspiring to 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 make this sort of money to to cover their mortgage and to to get on top of the cost of living. So he might have a bit of trouble with people who regard themselves as aspirational, not very rich, but you know on the way to you know wanting to be comfortable. Well, we've seen a number of pay disputes, most recently the paramedics, and I think uh, that resulted in their base rates going up to like 120,000-odd. And, of course, we've currently got the uh, wharf labourers taking industrial action, and uh, they're often over the $100,000 mark as, as well. So it, it's you know not just highly paid executives. There's a lot of people who can get caught up in this. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, there's a wharf dispute at the moment, um the DP and so on and you know I used to do a bit of work 
for the Wharfies. And when you look at the shift penalties, they're quite complicated how you how you do the rosters and the shift penalties, but they're quite lucrative. So certainly there would be Wharfies, you know, up to that 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 that, that tax range who could be affected. There would be, you know, plumbers and electricians, other tradies who would be uh, up at that range, and other people that rely um, on on shift penalties. So yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not not you know people in I don't know Point Piper, you know with Rolls Royces or I don't know well they they wouldn't drive Rolls Royces now what do they drive Teslas Teslas and and you know with their with their, with their um, you know uh, environmentally you know sustainable mansions and so on with with That's solar panels really on there. the roof I mean, yeah it's, it's really it's really it's it's really a lot of these people who I guess are aspirational a lot of be would be traditional blue collar and would be in the past, you know, die-hard Labor voters. So uh, a very different electorate now, and um, that's the risk they run. On the other hand, there'd be people, uh, even people who aren't poor themselves, who would say that you've got to give a bit of relief to those who need it more. So that's the other sort of part of the equation for him. I mean, you know, students who have got a set or ex-students who have got a 7% increase in their hex debt would wonder why the, the hex debts can be indexed and not the tax rates. It's, it's uh, just a simple calculation, surely. Well, yeah, people say the thing about how you adjust pensions and other payments from the government, in a sense, you know. Um, uh, so that's, uh, you know, that's another uh, another question, but they've just had that tradition with you set the pension by the average weekly earnings or the cost of living. I guess more people now are more interested in the cost of living. Professor Tim Harcourt, Industry Professor and Chief Economist at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking with me there. Hey there, we're the Warren Miller Band and you're listening to The Wire on community and Indigenous radio across Australia. For those who work late or overnight, shift work often comes with changes to one's lifestyle. Sleeping through the day or going to bed early are habits that become necessary parts of the job. However, while your body is adapting, it can result in shift work sleep disorder. Symptoms include lethargy, headaches, trouble with sleep. Shift work sleep disorder currently affects up to 20% of Australia's workforce across multiple industries. Stephen Samaras asked Dr Christopher Gordon, Associate Professor of Sleep Health at Macquarie University, just why was shift work so damaging to the body's internal clock? Shift work, working especially at night, means that you're working against the circadian pacemaker in the brain. What that means is the timing of when we're awake and when we're asleep. And over millions of years, because of the light and dark cycle of the earth, we have made ourselves sleep at night and stay awake during the day. And that means when we're doing shift work, we're working directly against our body clock and our body clock is screaming at us to stay asleep when we're trying to stay awake. And so that causes problems with what we call synchrony, the ability to the body to be able to shift in time to be able to cope with night shift. Shift work usually means like overnight work, right? Like night shift? There's actually no universal definition of shift work. Some people call it shift work outside regular hours, as in nine to five, Monday to Friday. Some people talk about it being overnight, but it can include shifts that go late into the evening, into the morning, or starting very early as well. But generally, it's hours outside regular business hours 
but typically in research studies, we look at people who work overnight, so they're engaged in night shift. How long does it take typically for the body to become accustomed to shift work? It's actually very individual. So all individuals will adjust differently according to their body clock and behaviours and their prior exposure. What we do know is that people are likely to self-select out of shift work. So they may start a job and they have to engage in shift work. And if they're not coping with it either, they're not able to rest sufficiently, sleep during the day or cope with it overnight, they often self-select out. So they move job to go to a job that they don't have to do in shift work. Conversely, we get some people who are able to cope very well with it and they don't mind the change in the shift. The other evidence that we know is that if people go on to night shift, they're going to take at least about four shifts before they've moved their body clock enough so that they are optimally awake overnight and able to sleep during the day. But shift work schedules are very different. And in Australia in particular, we do what we call lots of rotating shifts, which means people are moving between shifts. So adapting to shift work is very individual, but it also depends on the type of shift work you're doing. What about split shifts, early start, gap in the middle, then work till late and then repeat? So those split shifts can actually be very detrimental to people. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't be doing them. But the problem is, is whether or not they're going to get sufficient rest and be able to sleep sufficiently. So if they're working late into the evening and then starting early the next morning, that means that they mightn't have had a full sleep opportunity and they may still have residual sleepiness if they're going to work. That being said, I know some industries like air traffic control often engage in uh, split shifts because they want people to be concentrating for shorter periods of time and so they split the shift and that's a very deliberate thing to increase people's alertness and being able to perform maximally in their job. How can someone working irregular hours through shift work mitigate drowsiness and lack of rest? So what we try to tell people to do is to have a shift work sleep routine, a bit like what people do who have insomnia, people that have trouble going to sleep and staying asleep overnight. It's a bit the opposite when you're trying to sleep during the day. What we suggest people do is have a routine that they stick to when they're doing night shifts, that they go to bed, they wake up at the same time, and that they do the environmental things that will really help them sleep make the room dark, make it slightly cooler, don't have heavy meals, don't have caffeine or alcohol before you go to sleep and try to stick to that routine so that your body can adjust as well as it can when you're engaged in the shift work. How can someone maintain a healthy lifestyle while working irregular hours? Unfortunately, we do have evidence that shift workers and particularly people that work overnight and work for an extended period of time, years, they have a high risk of some chronic diseases, um, but we're not sure why that comes about. We think that it's got to do with the desynchronisation of the clock in terms of working overnight. But what people need to do is they need to maintain that shift work sleep schedule, try to get into that routine early, try to stay with that Try to adapt as early as possible, not getting too much light in the morning that's going to make you too alert and trying to manage that shift work and lifestyle rest and wake cycle so that you're maximising your sleep and trying to stay as healthy as possible whilst working shift work. Dr Christopher Gordon, Associate Professor of Sleep Health at Macquarie University, speaking there with Stephen Samaras.
Hey there, I'm Hamish McDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. A senior court psychologist has labelled Queensland's practice of housing youth detainees in the same facility as adult prisoners as nothing short of child abuse. Andrea Bates wrote an open letter to colleagues and government officials about the conditions at the Cairns Police Watch House where children are kept along with adult offenders. The letter also reveals several children are being housed in a single cell without fresh air for days and are forced to shower and urinate in front of each other. In an exclusive interview, National Radio News Director Frank Bonacorso asked Andrea Bates why she decided to label the issue as child abuse. I think the issue of looking at this in terms of human rights abuses kind of conflates it a little bit in the sense that I think the optics are if we're talking about human rights abuses. I think people think that these are people in custody that you know might have made a bad decision and weighed up the consequences of their actions. And that's not what's happened here. These children don't have that capacity. And from what I've seen, it's just nothing short of child abuse. Your open letters peppered with instances of malnutrition, mental abuse uh, and suffering, overcrowding and the danger of mixing children with adult prisoners. It's a toxic combination, to say the least. You know, we've got, owing to the screaming and the wailing and banging and the verbal aggression, you know, probably some of the worst profanity I've ever heard, and I've worked in some pretty tough places, you know, and quite often in the context of those adult detainees, you know, withdrawing from substances. So, I mean, imagine, if you will, a small child in their household witnessing a domestically violent incident in the family home. You know, only being different thing at some point the child might, get some kind of a reprieve but that's not the case in the watch house you know they're witnessing that kind of violence 24 7 and aside from the violence emanating around them and through the place if you consider a member of the public walked into say like a residential facility who was charged with looking after children whether it be disability supported or some other community setting if you were to observe children having to urinate and defecate in front of one another four children to a room, mattresses on the floor in such close proximity that they can spread communicable diseases, no soap, kids not being able to leave their room, you know, for up to two days not getting fresh air, mental stimulation, you know, and chronic sleep deprivation, increasing the risk of psychosis. And this is going on for some kids up to 20 days. You'd report that to the authorities. And those children would be removed from that facility by day's end. And I just don't, you know, if it's not acceptable in the community, why is it acceptable in a custodial setting? And on top of all that horror and misery, you have children experiencing those conditions who have neurodevelopmental disorders and intellectual deficits. Indeed, as a former Western Australian independent prisons watchdog, commented recently he labelled an incident at the Cairns Watch House where a guard need a teenage inmate in the torso as gratuitous violence. Um, uh, th- th- this can only exacerbate the uh, picture that you're painting of conditions at the Watch House, but to come from an independent prison's watchdog is, you know, uh, I-, I guess, indicative of the seriousness of the situation in Cairns. 
Yeah, and I wanted to make it really clear that, you know, QPS are doing their utter utmost best. They're doing the best job they can under really difficult circumstances. And I've been very critical of the multi-level approach that's being pursued by the government in this space because they're part of the problem increasing the risk to QPS. And, you know, I'd say anecdotally, based on my observations and previous experience kind of working in similar multi-system models, you know, whatever they're doing in the watch house is not working in that space because it's increasing the pressure of those services going in there constantly is placing significant pressure on QPS. Your decision to go public and speak to the leaked letter that has been published in a number of um, media agencies could have possible ramifications for you. Why have you decided to go public? Well, I I couldn't sleep at night, Frank. This has been really, really traumatic. You know, to be a mother, work so passionately in our field to try and, you know, help our kids access the care that they need, to see those conditions day in day out and have kids beg you for food and ask you know can we you know I just it got to the point where I couldn't sleep at night and I just thought I couldn't live with myself if you know I didn't I didn't speak up I mean the reason I was happy to have my identity revealed in the article writing the leaked letter was because I stand by what I wrote and because I firmly believe that things have gotten so out of hand that a death in custody is imminent. And my other major reason for writing an open letter to the Premier and the Ministers was to protect all my colleagues in that space. Senior Court Psychologist Andrea Bates there speaking with NRN's Frank Bonacorso. Reception isn't always the best out here in the bush. But if I miss The Wire, I listen to the podcast. The Wire. Across Australia weeknights on Indigenous and Community Radio. And now podcast. In the New Hampshire GOP candidate primaries, former US President Donald Trump seems to have an iron grip on the Republican nomination with a comfortable win. With most of the vote counted, Donald Trump has picked up 54% of the vote and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley claiming 43.5%. Stephen Hill asked Director of Research at the United States Study Centre, Jared Monshine, whether these results point to Donald Trump becoming the GOP presidential candidate for the third consecutive time. I think New Hampshire was the last best chance for Haley to have any guide path to winning the nomination. And now that she's lost New Hampshire, I think the race is all but over. She had a more favorable opportunity in New Hampshire than she does in her home state of South Carolina, which votes in a month from now. And I don't see the pretty significant margin that Trump has been here by in South Carolina decreasing anytime soon. And I should note that that margin is significantly higher than the margin that we're seeing in New Hampshire. So right now, as I said, the race is all but over. With with Trump's win in New Hampshire, you can almost say that there's a sense of inevitability that Donald Trump will be the GOP candidate. That's right. He's never had less than 74% of Republicans approve of him. That includes after 
January 6, 2021, about 74% or more has stayed consistent. And we're seeing evidence of that right now in the results of the New Hampshire primary. Even though New Hampshire is demographically a pretty different state, it still was not enough to get Haley over the line. And in many ways, this is just uh, Trump's nomination, but it just hasn't been confirmed. There's been a lot of talk about Donald Trump's legal troubles. A CBS poll showed that half of New Hampshire primary voters said that Trump is fit to be president even if he's convicted of a crime. Over the last weeks, there have been a lot of legal wranglings in the media. Do you think this has helped or hurt Donald Trump on the campaign trail? Well, it depends on which campaign trail we're talking about. Amongst the Republicans, I think it's largely helped him. He's seen more support thanks to the coverage from the trials that he's uh, facing, and he's seen the GOP alternatives reluctantly support him. But if you look at the broader election against most likely Joe Biden, then I don't know if it necessarily helps him. It's important to note that the margin of victory for Joe Biden in 2020 was in the popular vote a few million, but in the electoral college, just a few thousand. It was about 45,000 votes spread across three states that really gave the election to Joe Biden. And back in 2016, it was 25,000 votes that gave the election to Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. It's hard to know when the margins are so small just how this is going to break either way. But on the whole, I don't think the case has necessarily helped the former president in the general election. Now, it seemed not that long ago that Ron DeSantos was being proclaimed by Murdoch's New York Post as the future. Yet this week, with polling in the single digit, Florida governor's very much in the past tense now, having dropped out. Do you think that this was a result of his poor candidate performance? Or is this more that Trump just has such magnetic appeal when it comes to the GOP base? I think it's both. In many ways, DeSantis had a lot going for him. He seemed to miss a lot of opportunities to to capitalize on the goodwill that he had towards him for Republicans looking for an alternative to Trump. But at the same time, like I said, that that majority of Republicans still approving of Trump, three quarters, that's really hard to uh, overcome. When you uh, run to the right of Donald Trump on a number of issues, it's it's hard to get more support. I think uh, DeSantis' candidacy was flawed, but Donald Trump is already a formidable challenger that would have been very difficult to beat. On the Republican side, the talk will then be on the discussion about vice president. Now, this week, Trump seemed to be ruling out Nikki Haley who might have actually been quite helpful for targeting women, minority and moderate voters. Who do you see as the likely vice presidential candidates? Oh, there's a lot of them. And Trump is going to keep this parlor game going as long as he possibly can because it increases the media coverage of him. So there's Sarah Huckabee Sanders, his former press secretary, who's now the governor of Arkansas. There is Elise Stefanik, who is a representative in upstate New York, who has resoundingly endorsed Donald Trump. There's even Tim Scott who was ran for president uh, not too long ago, the South Carolina senator, who could be a pretty significant contribution to Trump's electoral chances. But I think one thing that we know for sure is that Trump will very likely want someone who brings something demographically to the ticket, whether that be a woman or a person who is not white. At this point, unlike back in 2016, he doesn't need a Mike Pence who's a trusted pair of hands. He needs someone who just helps him win the election. Finally, I mean, let's talk about the Iowa primary, that the turnout was actually quite low in the amount of voters. I mean, there were some quite extinguishing circumstances, particularly the below freezing temperatures. Do you think that this shows a a lack of enthusiasm in the Republican field, or is it more just that the Trump has such a big poll lead? That- I, again, I, I don't see why it can be both. Um, I think the contribution of the cold, the contribution of, of Trump having such a lead, I, 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 but also that there's just not that much enthusiasm to run the same candidate that they ran twice before. There's few elections on history that have been as unpopular as the one that we're likely seeing between Biden and Trump. The, the majority of Americans don't want to see it occur, but for a number of reasons, it is 
exactly what's about to occur in November of this year. Do you think as it becomes now more apparent that Trump is going to be the candidate? I mean, I know the Democratic pollsters are hoping that, that this will lead to a lift of enthusiasm for Joe Biden, that maybe more negative partisanship will lead people to think, oh, well, we definitely need to support Biden because of the concern of the return of Trump. Um, yeah, I mean, the Biden team, they're banking on Trump being uniquely unpopular foreign president with very high negatives. And Biden famously likes to say, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the other guy. And out of all the other guys available, I think Biden has his best chances against the other guy being Donald Trump. Jared Monshine, Director of Research, the United States Study Center, speaking there with Stephen Hill. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Listener.